This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 264th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a brand new carnivore from Argentina named Lajas Venator, and some Jurassic World news. We also have an interview with Jenny Brammel from the Australian Opal Center, which is in Lightning Ridge. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Unenlagia. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons, It's a good time of year to thank people. And this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Wouter, Moss Utah Raptor, Verossa Raptor, Switchbreed, Goji, and Neil Ovenator. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. Your support means a lot to us, especially coming up to this holiday season. Makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. And we understand with the holidays coming up, it's not always feasible to support your favorite podcasts. So even if you can't join, though, we'd appreciate you telling a friend about I Know Dino. If you have friends who are dinosaur enthusiasts like you, and if you want to join our growing community, then check out our page, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Jumping into the news, our first article was by Rodolfo Coria and others and published in Cretaceous Research, and it's all about a new Carcharodontosaurid from Argentina. It's named Lajas Venator Asherai A, and Lajas Venator is Lajas Hunter. It's after the city of Las Lajas, where it was found. And Asherai A is after Susanna Asherai for, quote, her kindness in allowing us to work on her land, end quote. That's nice. Yeah, if we had a dinosaur, we'd let people on our land, then we could have a dinosaur named after us. That'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's unlikely, considering we have very little land, yep. and uh, there's no Mesozoic stuff here. And even if there was, it would probably be marine. But anyway, they found two individuals of Lajas Venator on Susanna's land, one in 2010 and the other in 2012, 50 meters away. I assume it's still on her land because we're talking about sort of wide open Argentinian spaces. So 50 meters is nothing in the scope of people's land. But the holotype is part of the snout, including three teeth, as well as lots of vertebrae, parts of the hips, and possible gastralia. Then the second individual includes the tip of the jaw, back of the head, more vertebrae, ribs, and maybe a foot bone, but they're not so sure about the foot bone. And except for that possible foot bone, we have no limb bones from either individual whatsoever of Lajas Venator. So it makes weight estimates super inaccurate. I don't think they even bothered to make one. They also can't easily look for lags, so they can't tell how old the individual was when it died. Sometimes I say how old the animal was, and then it's like, wait, are we talking about how old, like, Cretaceous? Are we talking about how old (laughs) it was? But I mean, like, if it was five years old. So we don't know. They believe, though, that it's an adult because the vertebrae look like they're fused, which means I'm thinking, you know, these large theropods tended to be, like, teenagers when they eventually got skeletally mature, so that's probably the right ballpark. It's roughly three and a half meters long or 11 and a half feet long, which is not all that big for a dinosaur, especially a carnivore. It's also probably shorter than most people. It looks like it was only a little bit more than a meter tall. 
in the depictions of it. So, I mean, short height-wise in that case, obviously right. most people aren't 11 and a half feet tall. Yeah, so it's still pretty long. <laughs> yeah, long but short height-wise. Like pretty much all theropods are, they're usually about three times as long as they are tall, roughly. They classify it as medium-sized, which I think is kind of generous because three and a half meters long for a theropod isn't really all that big. And by comparison, Carcharodontosaurus was about four times as long. That one was essentially T-Rex-sized, but maybe they would call that like extremely large rather than just large-sized. <laughs> I don't know. But I think this was the smallest Carcharodontosaurian that we've seen so far. Lajas Venator was found in the Pilmatue locality, which is where the Amargosaurus relative Pilmatueya <laughs> was named last year. Shockingly, Pilmatueya is from Pilmatue. Lajas Venator is the oldest Carcharodontosaurid known from South America. That's probably why it's the smallest. Could be, yeah. That's true. A lot of the early Cretaceous stuff was a little bit smaller. The Pilmatue locality is dated to the Upper Valanginian, which is a period we pretty much never talk about it. <laughs> when I looked at that, I was like, what is the Valanginian? Because I don't see it very often. And it's really poorly known for dinosaurs in general, which is why we don't see it all that often. But that period is roughly 135 million years old. And that makes Lajas Venator at least 30 million years older than Carcharodontosaurus. So yeah, it's quite a bit earlier than its big relative, which of course kind of brings up comparisons to T-Rex because we know Tyrannosaurus rex evolved from smaller ancestors and eventually got really massive. So maybe Carcharodontosaurids were doing the same kind of thing. Interestingly, they actually found Lajas Venator with at least three herbivores. So there's the sauropod Pilmatueya, there was an unidentified diplodocid, and a, quote, iguanodontian-like ornithopod, end quote. The Pilmatueya paper mentioned a theropod that was found nearby, which I'm guessing is probably this Lajas Venator. So I'm guessing maybe we'll see a new paper about that ornithopod soon. Maybe it'll be a whole other new species, so they might have found three brand new things all clumped together. We'll have to wait and see. This one find could be really helpful in helping us find out about the Valanginian period. That's true. Sometimes you get really lucky. And speaking of getting really lucky, our next paper published in Cretaceous Research by Robert Holmes, Walter Scott Persons, and others is an update on Hannah the Ceratopsian, which we first heard about from Scott Persons back in episode 84. Yeah, that kind of shows it takes a while to get these papers out. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> So Hannah, if you haven't heard that interview, is named after his dog, Scott's dog. <laughs> and eventually, after all the excavation work, they realized that it was a Styracosaurus albertensis, which is the ceratopsian with all the horn-like things sticking out of its frill. It's my favorite character in The Good Dinosaur. Oh, yeah. That was a good-looking one. <laughs> yeah. It was found, Hannah not the one in The Good Dinosaur, was found with just the nose horn sticking up out of the ground, and the rest of the skull was still preserved in the rock below, which is pretty ideal. People talk about when you find a dinosaur, what you want is just like the tip of the toe poking out, mm -hmm. and then the rest of the skeleton completely encased in rock. You have to have a good eye, though, to find that tip. Yes. I think it's easier with ceratopsians because they have such long horns, and if you st see something like a ceratopsian horn sticking up out of the dirt, it tends to stand out. So... Fortunately, Scott noticed this one, and it was in excellent shape. The full skull is about 172 centimeters, or 5 foot 8 inches long, and its longest epiossification is about 30 centimeters, or 1 foot long, and I should probably say epiossifications are those horn-like things that stick out of a Styracosaurus frill. They don't have to be horn-like. Epiossifications can be any sort of bumps along the edge of the frill, so even Triceratops has them. They're just pretty much flat with the skull. So a one foot long one sticking out is pretty long, but that probably wasn't even the longest epiossification that it had when it was alive. Some of the longer potential spots look like they were broken off during the fossilization process, and that also doesn't include any keratin sheath that would have been over it, which likely was <laughs> while it was alive. So this thing did have really massive horn-like things all over its frill. Pretty cool. 
Hannah does have one pathology. It's a face injury that got infected. No. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, it did eventually heal. And they're not sure exactly when it happened, but they said it was probably caused by physical trauma, which could have been any number of things. Some of them are a predator, maybe rivals, because we think that they might have butted horns a little bit and that could scratch you open and then there's bacteria around, get infected. Or it could have just been an accident, like it bumped into a tree or something, or while it was eating, grazed against something. And It was probably painful, whatever it was. Yeah, infections on the face are not great. And it doesn't have any way to like touch it either because it's got no hands, just mm-hmm. all feet. Yeah, that's a bummer. But eventually it did heal and had a pretty long life, it looks like, which is nice. One way to classify a ceratopsian so to figure out that Hannah is this styracosaurus, is by epiossifications. So people who study these always look really closely at the number of epiossifications around the frill, how big they are, which way they point, if there's any curvature, if they're fused, and all these little details. And by looking at it, they obviously figured out it was a styracosaurus, but it's really unusual compared to a lot of other epiossifications. So in a typical ceratopsian, they are completely symmetric. So if you start in the middle line, sort of going down that nose horn, looking at its face, and you count down either side, you'll get the exact same number, and they'll just look like a mirror image of the other side. But Hannah is super weird. It has seven epiossifications on one side, on the right side, which is the same as the holotype, which was partly what helped them identify it as a styracosaurus. But then the left side has eight, (laughs) Hmm. which is super weird because we really count on this number of epiossifications being consistent because it's one of the ways that we use to identify different ceratopsians. Could it be some individuals are just a little bit different, like how humans, some of us have different numbers of wisdom teeth or things like that? Yeah. So that's basically what they ended up concluding is that, yeah, there must be more individual variation within styracosaurus and therefore ostensibly other ceratopsians than we previously thought. But that kind of (laughs) creates a huge problem because we've been naming all of these dinosaurs like, oh, it looks just like that one, but it's got one more set of epiossifications. So it must be a new species. Like Maybe not. (laughs) Is it time for a revamp of our phylogenetic analysis? It might be. A lot of synonymizing might be coming up. Another thing that was really interesting, too, is that the two smaller epiossifications on this styracosaurus curve a lot more than we see on the holotype, and it sort of resembles Centrosaurus. It's not similar enough to be synonymized, but they said that it could be anagenic, which is that weird term that means something evolving directly into the other one. So it kind of looks like Centrosaurus might have evolved directly into Styracosaurus. That's kind of fun when you see that direct link. Yeah, it's super hard to prove though, and really, really hard in paleontology. It's hard enough even just like in the recent fossil record (laughs) or just like living animals to see that kind of thing, even harder in this kind of situation, which they recognize as well. But even though Centrosaurus didn't get synonymized, when you include Hannah in the diversity of Styracosaurus albertensis, it includes all of the unique features of Rubeosaurus ovatus, which was formerly known as Styracosaurus ovatus. So since we're calling this one Styracosaurus albertensis, that means that there's no more Rubeosaurus and there's also no more ovatus as a species either. It's 100% synonymized. Yeah, it's not just like now there's a new species of Styracosaurus that used to be called something else. They're proposing just fully eliminating this entire genus and species. (laughs) It wasn't really that good of a find anyway. It's basically just epiossifications that Rubeosaurus was named based on, which if we have now this question about how diverse epiossifications can be, that's obviously not a great way (laughs) to name a Ceratopsian anymore. True. It just goes to show the how science is always changing. And with dinosaurs, we see this all the time. Yeah, for sure. In other news, in Chengde, Hebei province in northern China, dinosaur footprints have been found in the former Qing Dynasty Imperial Summer Resort. So they have more than 140 theropod footprints from the Jurassic as well as a sauropod track. 
and the resort was built in 1703. So, yeah, pretty cool to have footprints in a imperial summer resort. Yeah, and a ton of them. 140? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like how it's just a sauropod track, though. 140 theropods and one sauropod track. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe there's more that will be found later. Yeah, seems likely. We have some Jurassic World news. So the Jurassic World YouTube channel has been posting pretty frequently lately. So most recently is the second installment of the Jurassic World motion comic series called Dinosaur Crossing. And that was really fun to watch. It's these short videos and it's that's exactly what it says, motion comic. So it's comic style and then a little bit of movement, a little bit of animation. Okay, so kind of like when you see the storyboards. Yeah. Cool. And in this second installment is a dad who works at the Department of Wildlife, runs into a Triceratops and Ankylosaurus fighting while on his way to work. And so these comics are meant to give us an idea of what the world looks like after Fallen Kingdom. So it's pretty fun to see these snippets and get us ready for Jurassic World 3. Yeah. I really want to know all the different areas they're going to explore because we know it's going to be like around the world, different places that dinosaurs have escaped to, basically. There's an unlimited number of cool things you could do. Well, I could see a lot coming, like how we're seeing before Jurassic World 3, these different media and stories coming out. But I could see that going on for a long time after the movie comes out, too. Yeah, that's true. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Jenny. We're joined this week by Jenny Brammel, who is the Special Projects Coordinator at the Australian Opal Centre here in Lightning Ridge, Australia. It's in New South Wales also, in case you're wondering, near Queensland. (laughs) And the Special Projects Coordinator job means that not only does she manage the fossil collections and arrange for visitors like us when we arrive, but she also is managing the new building construction, or at least the museum side of it, which is massive. So thank you so much for joining with us. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for your interest. (laughs) (laughs) So your background's in paleontology. Yes, yes. I I studied paleontology at the University of New South Wales back in the early 1990s and visited Lightning Ridge actually looking for mammal fossils from the age of dinosaurs and fell in love with Lightning Ridge from the first time my feet hit the ground here. (laughs) Ended up moving here in mid-1998. Wow. That seems to be a common story based on 
talked to a few people from here. They came here maybe for a visit or for a short time and then ended up living here. <laughs> There's so many stories like that. It's it's the norm, yeah. And when I came here in mid-1998, I thought I was here for four weeks as the editor of the local newspaper while the editor was on leave. Mm. And so 21 years later, here I am. <laughs> and as you say, many people have a similar story. <laughs> what is it about Lightning Ridge that you think makes people want to stay for me, it's a great feeling of freedom and possibility. Um, having lived in Sydney, where I, I mean, and Sydney's a great city, but I ended up feeling like it took just about all my energy just to get up, get to where I needed to be, do what I needed to do, and get home again. In Lightning Ridge, I feel like anything is possible. It's just up to me to decide what it is and make it happen. So that's what it is for me. But there's a great community, great people, beautiful landscapes, and there's something really special about the mix of people that are drawn here by opal and our incredible fossils and the landscape and lifestyle that comes with that. So it's a whole lot of things and it's different things for different people. Yeah, it is a really nice place. <laughs> and you mentioned opal, which is obviously we're in the Australian Opal Center and opal mining is a little bit different than some other types of mining. Could you quickly explain to us newbies what opal sure. mining is like? Well, I mean, one thing that in this day and age makes it different is that it's very small scale mining. In in the Lightning Ridge mining fields, each miner can only have two mineral claims in his or her name. And each of those claims is only 50 by 50 metres. Hmm. So it's really small compared to other industries like um, coal or metal or so on. And so it's also um, an industry where when you go to work, nobody pays you to go to work mm. and you're treasure hunting. So it's it's the dream of finding something beautiful. It's the wonder of seeing things that, you know, light hasn't touched in 100 million years. Um, it's the hope of striking it rich and it's the sort of your own boss. Um, you can you can go to work when you please, come home when you please, work hard and with a bit of luck you'll you'll find something magnificent. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of things that make it different, but that's one of the things is that it's a, an industry made of many small businesses that usually only have one or two individuals in it. So when you're doing the shaft and tunnel, do you just kind of dig down until you find opal and then that's kind of an opal layer? If only. So you, <laughs> you actually dig down until you find the rock that's the right type of rock to potentially uh. contain the opal. So a lot of miners, before they mine, they actually do what's called prospecting drilling. So they put a series of test holes down usually about nine inches in diameter, and we still talk inches and <laughs> and feet um, in a lot of the mining um, work. And they're actually looking for the right levels of sandstone, the right geology, so that they think it's a good prospective area. If they drill up opal, people will say, oh, you know, old mate drilled up opal out at such and such a field the other day, then that's exciting and it's unusual, but it's not what they're actually looking for. <laughs> yeah. So it's not it's not like striking oil. It's more like a yeah. long process. It's a long process, yeah. And and the miners who do this for a long time get really good at reading the ground and knowing what to look for. And they're also sometimes looking at surface indications. So they're looking for it could be a row of trees that suggests that um, there's a fault line underground. The tree roots are seeking the water that is likely to form or be carried in a fault line that may also be involved with opal formation further underground. So the miners have all sorts of knowledge from their work above and below ground. And um, that's that's a really great value to geologists too. Yeah. yeah. So as a paleontologist, how does the rock that preserves or creates opal compare to the rock that you might find a fossil in? They're one and the same. The opalized fossils that we find, um, virtually all of the fossils found in the mines here are opalized. Um, there's a couple of exceptions, but on the whole, they're all opalized. So they form the same way, essentially, as non-fossil opal. So water percolating through rock, dissolving silica as it goes, if all the conditions are right, and it's a really complex sort of set of pH and other conditions that you need, if that water can pool in a, in a cavity and if, if everything's just perfect, then the silica in that water can start to form tiny spheres that can become opal. So those cavities or spaces in the rock can be there for any of many reasons. They could be an air bubble or earth movement that's created a space or uh, a gap left where there's been increasing pressure and air or water has burst out under, under the pressure of the collecting sediments. 
or there could be a space there because some organic remains, some remains of a plant or an animal or something else has been buried there. So it's the same rock. We're looking for the same, the opal miners um, and paleontologists are all looking for the same sediments really. Wow. Yeah. So you work pretty closely together. We do. And and it's it's not a sort of a day-to-day we're down at the coal face or at the opal face together, but um, we have a shared appreciation of the rarity of the circumstances to produce precious opal and many miners share with paleontologists and and others this incredible sense of wonder and privilege at, at finding these things that have been buried and that have formed in the dark to create this gemstone that only comes to life in the light over <laughs> many millions of years. So yeah, it's an it's an amazing situation. Yeah. What's the youngest opalized fossils that you guys can find? Or is it everything around here basically from the Mesozoic? Yeah, everything around here is from the Mesozoic. And even more than that, everything around here is from approximately the same um, time period, um, 96 to 100 million years ago. Until recently, we didn't have an absolute date. It was all dated on relative means. And we thought the date of these deposits was around 110 million Hmm. Um, a few years ago, we had a colleague from um, Bologna in Italy, um, Federico Fanti, is a geologist and paleontologist, came out as part of one of our fossil digs, and he heard about what the miners were calling waxy band, which <laughs> is a level in some of the mines here. It's quite rare. But Federico thought, gee, that sounds like they might be describing decomposed volcanic ash. Hmm. So we we got him down about 25 mines in the course of a couple of weeks thanks wow. to the generosity of the miners who hosted him and, and let him go and look and collect samples and we found a miner who had a mine containing this waxy band and over the years to follow we found that it was indeed volcanic ash and that it contained zircon crystals and that they could be dated and that that gave us this date of 96 to 100 million years. Wow. Yeah. So looking at the geology and the stratigraphy, we think that all of the fossils are from a relatively narrow band of time. And now whether that's tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, we're not sure, but it's not millions of years. Um, it's sort of big flood events and, and things that carrying lots of sediment um, over a relatively short span of time. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of fossils that have been found that are opalized around here? Yeah, sure. The most commonly found are plant fossils. So Mm. if I can just tell you a bit about the paleo environment first. Yeah. We were some distance from an inland sea that is long gone and we were on a coastal floodplain near that sea. And so we have rivers flowing down to the sea and we have forests. Um, The world's climate was a lot different. Australia was a lot closer to the South Pole but overall the world climate was a bit warmer. So we have forests that are being run through by rivers and streams and billabongs, and that's where our opal deposits were formed, in the bottom of these waterways. So sediments were being washed out to sea, and when we were really lucky, looking back, um, occasionally things that either lived in the water or that died and were washed into the water would be buried. So as in any situation like that in a forest today, what you have most of is vegetation. So you've got leaf litter and all sorts of things from the forest that are being washed into the water and carried along and mixed up with the sediment and buried. So the miners produce literally tons of opalized plant material. Now, a mm. lot of it is partly decomposed before it was even buried. Um, it's it's sort of really indeterminate. It doesn't have a lot of anatomical detail, but there's heaps of that. Um, amongst that, there are rarer pieces with beautiful detail of plant structures, um, little little cones, pine cones from things like aracarian trees, little pieces of wood with beautiful internal detail and surface Mm. texture. So there's a lot of different types of plant material and just note to paleobotanists, none of it's really been studied properly. So there's an opening there (laughs) looking for somebody to come and have a, have a good time with our plant bits. (laughs) (laughs) Then after that, the invertebrates. So it sort of just follows the, 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 what you, what we find in the world. So we have a lot of um, bivalve mollusks. So um, we call them mussels or some people call them clams up to 12 species of those. Wow. And in some mines, there must have been something about, you know, a curve in the river or something about the flow of water or the environment. There are hundreds of them or thousands of them. And in other cases, they're more rare. 
We have freshwater snails and they're, they're beautiful. They're some of my favourites They're because they look like what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're so cute. <laughs> um, one of the world's oldest air-breathing snails, a pulmonate snail, was described from Lightning Ridge a few years ago. Yabbies or freshwater crayfish, they have gastroliths or, or bioliths, so biologically formed stone-like structures that are part of their annual molt. This is the only place in the world where opalized yabby buttons or crayfish gastroliths are found. And then we get into the vertebrates. And so we're looking at turtles, freshwater fish, bony fish, lungfish, plesiosaurs, crocodiles, dinosaurs, mammals, and really rare remnants of pterosaurs as well. So it's one of the most diverse Mesozoic faunas or certainly one of the most diverse faunas of this part of the Cretaceous in the world. Yeah. yeah it's incredible. Mm. That is amazing. Mm. I know you mentioned when we were talking before the interview mm. that sometimes in days long past, people might just look right over a fossilized remnant because you know, they weren't aware of the value, mm. scientific or otherwise. Mm. How do you get the word out to miners now to make sure that they're aware of mm. you guys and that they don't throw something away that they well, should keep? Yeah, for, for years, even before the Australian Opal Centre had, had come into being, paleontologists from the Australian Museum in Sydney would come up here once a year during the Opal Festival and offer an identification service. Mm. When they stopped doing that, um, my colleague Elizabeth Smith, another local paleontologist, and I started to do that as well. Every Saturday we offer a fossil identification service right here at the Australian Opal Centre so miners or anyone, members of the public, can bring fossils in and we'll identify them if we can. We have a a network of of members of our organisation. So we've got a number of ways, you know, newsletters and these days social media and so on. So we just do our best and a lot of it's just conversations with people, um, long conversations with miners who then, if they're interested, they'll talk to other miners. So we still lose a lot of fossils um, and, and you know, miners have got to eat and they've got to put fuel in their machinery and they've got to feed their kids and put clothes on their kids. So it's it's a difficult thing. You know, if you, as an opal miner, and this is another thing that's a bit different with opal mining, you could take six months, a year, two years, three years before you find anything of value that is enough to cover your expenses, let alone pay your wages as it were. So you know, we're, we're pragmatic about that. And um, sometimes we lose things because people simply can't afford to do anything other than sell them uh, to private collectors or, heaven forbid, grind them away on a cutting wheel mm-hmm. uh, and completely destroy their identity and value as a fossil. Do you ever get a chance to like take a picture of them before they disappear? Sometimes, but I think I think people who have that on in their mind often don't want to show it to us mm. um, either because they're embarrassed or ashamed or they just don't think it's of value to to sort of wave it in front of our nose when they know their intentions are otherwise. So we've, we have photographed things, you know, fossils that have got away from people who have, you know, very generous with what they find and sharing the information with us and then they go away and we're not sure what happens to the fossil and sometimes they're lost. Mm. But so, other times they get donated to you, right? Indeed, yeah. <laughs> so we, we now have many, many thousands of fossils in our collection oh, wow. thanks to many, many dozens of not only opal miners but all sorts of people, um, people who find them while they're here on holidays, mm. opal dealers who are buying and selling opal all the time and come across fossils incidentally as they're going along and, and choose to donate them to us. And a lot of the fossils that come to us are donated through a tax incentive scheme that the Australian Federal Government makes possible so that they can at least get some sort of value in the form of a deduction from their taxable income. So it's not the same or usually as much as you would get if you actually sold it to the highest bidder in an open collector market, but it's a win-win situation. Unfortunately, some miners don't earn enough to be able to benefit from that system, but we just work to try and save the things that we can. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your colleague, Elizabeth, and she's written basically the definitive book on opalized fossils. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. She first visited Lightning Ridge with her husband, Robert, in the 1970s, and then they ended up moving here permanently. And their their stories are a wonderful one. I mean, 
even before they moved to Lightning Ridge, they're just fascinating people. But when they were living here, they were caretakers at what are called miners' tanks. So these are processing areas where miners take the material that they've mined and put it through big modified cement mixes called agitators and tumble it with water to try and break away of, uh, as much of the clay and sand as possible and leave the hard tailings behind that they hope will have opal in it. So at some of these tanks, there's a caretaker whose job it is to see off anyone who might come in thinking that they might have a sniff around these, this, this system or these machines. And in many cases, the caretaker has what's called specking rights. Specking's a word for going out and looking for opal on the ground, mm. um, fossicking or noodling. And so Bob and Liz were caretakers at one of these dams. And so in the process of doing that, they started to find fossils and Liz was absolutely fascinated and intrigued and her background's in fine arts. She started doing precise drawings of them and sending them away to u- universities and museums and saying, can you tell me what this is? And then the miners started to know that Liz was taking an interest in this so that they'd bring her things to show her and ask her if she could tell them what it was and sometimes would you like to keep it with your other fossils? So she was doing this for a number of years and ended up enrolling to do her doctorate through the Uni of New South Wales, which she completed specialising in opalised fossils and particularly the turtles. Yep, so that's Bob and Liz, and Liz is still an important part of the Australian Opal Centre. Which is growing. Which is growing, <laughs> yeah, growing, really, really growing. So, yes, we, um, we've we been working for years to build a new a new facility. The room we're sitting in now is really small. (laughs) It's really small. Um, You can probably only fit about 15 people in here comfortably at a time. It's about the size of a gift shop in a lot of museums, I would say. Yeah, a small gift shop (laughs) in a lot of museums. Yeah. So we've been operating from here since December 2008 and we grew out of this space immediately. Our new building is two stories high, 100 metres long and about 30 metres wide, and that will be a world centre and a permanent home for Australia's greatest public collection of opal, opalised fossils and the natural and cultural heritage of our outback opal fields. Yeah, it's amazing. There's a model of it sitting right behind us as we're talking about this, and we also went out to where it's going to be built. And right now it's just a large pit in the ground, but it is an incredibly large pit (laughs) because much of it's going to be underground, right? Yeah, that's right. So when I said two stories high, I should have said two stories (laughs) deep really, (laughs) because the lower level will be completely underground and the upper level will be about half into the ground. And that's it's, it's emulating what people do who live in dugouts at White Cliffs, Coobapedian and Amuka and even into the side of the Mises or hills in parts of Western Queensland. The ground here is not suitable for underground living, but what we can do is dig a big hole, and we're really good at digging holes here, <laughs> and put a building into it. So the reason to do that is so that it's insulated by the thermal mass of the earth and kept at a more or less constant temperature all year without requiring lots of electricity to power air conditioning. Cool. And we should talk about some of the dinosaur fossils that you've been yes. collecting. So what was the, f- do you know what the first dinosaur fossils were that the museum collected? Uh, the first ones that we collected were quite a range. So when we started our collection, that was about 2005. And once people in the community and the mining community knew what we were doing and that their fossils would stay in this area, we had quite an influx of fossils that people had kept and treasured and taken care of. So I couldn't tell you the first one, but we had a couple of really amazing donations from miners who'd collected stuff over the years. So there was ornithopod and theropod and sauropod material all in those early donations. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been a steady building up of the collection over the last, since, yeah, 2005. And it's still growing, so there's still new materials coming in. And now that we've we have secured um, funding to build the first stage of our new museum, that's given more people even greater confidence that their material will be safe with us and it will stay here in perpetuity. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Was the amazing gemstone quality sauropod tooth that you showed us one of the early donations? No, it's a more re- recent one. Yeah, it came in maybe two or three years ago from. Um, some mining partners who realised that they had something pretty special. So they will be acknowledged in our showcases and, you know, when we publish papers 
or when our scientific colleagues publish papers about the fossils, we always acknowledge the miners or the donors if they want to be. Now, sometimes they want to keep their identity anonymous for privacy reasons, but it's up to them and that's something that we respect always. But it's just beautiful to see after years and years and years of collecting and somebody taking care of things that we can show them a scientific paper with their name in the acknowledgements as the donor of that piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For our listeners, don't worry, we took pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll share them. <laughs> of the most beautiful sauropod tooth in the world, just it, saying. Yes. It yeah. really is. Oh, yes. I don't think it has any competition, really. <laughs> yeah. It's bizarre, though, isn't it? You know, it's like a it's like a grill or, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. all of those fancy things people do with their teeth. But. Yeah. And then we should also ask, Is you have We Were a Saurus here. Am I we saying that right? We do. We Were a Saurus, yes. Um, we Were a Saurus Pobani um, was unveiled to the world I think it was December last year and lovely small ornithopod dinosaur described as being about the size of a kelpie which is a an Australian working dog breed um, <laughs> and yeah amazing story found in some um, rough opal by an opal buyer and dealer who did realize fairly quickly that he had something really important when he found the first of two pieces um, they're beautiful fan-shaped teeth Um, like a crinkle-cut potato crisp. They're just gorgeous and it's in a combination of common opal and precious opal with a sort of wash of green over it, lime green. So, yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then wasn't the story too that he sold the bag and then or tried to sell the bag and it came back to him? that's right. That's right. So he first was he bought what we call a parcel of opal and he went through it to pull out the stuff that he was keenest to keep and try and cut and move on. And then he sent out the rest of it with a runner who's an agent um, who goes out and tries to sell opal for people to other people. And after nine days, the runner came back and said, couldn't sell it, here it is, returning it to you. And um, Mike, who'd found the first piece, went through it and found a second piece of the same (laughs) chore. So... So many lucky <laughs> instances just piling upon one another, and the fact that he he had seen um, drawings in in Elizabeth Smith's book many years previously, and had seen photographs and drawings of these little ornithopod teeth with the with the fan sort of structure, and so that had sort of left an imprint in his mind. Mm-hmm. When he first started telling me this story, he thought he'd seen it in the Encyclopedia Britannica that he'd been given as a kid, and then he remembered that it was actually Liz's book. Wow. <laughs> so it's a great reference. I know. So just out of all of the tons of dirt that were mined, he ended up being handed the bag that had those two pieces in it. Mm-hmm. And then he spotted them and they were covered, they were mostly obscured by dirt, so easily missed. So, yeah, I mean, it makes you think about the ones that we don't see. Yeah. We're well, so the, grateful. You also offer digs, right? Yes, yes. So once a year we run a, a fossil dig um, in partnership with the Australian Geographic Society mm. and um, Dr Phil Bell, who's a dinosaur specialist from the University of New England at Armidale. And I think this year was our sixth year um, and it's it's wonderful. So we run six-day digs uh, and we run them back-to-back um, with a different group of people with on each of those. And, of course, it's not like a normal dinosaur dig. Um, we can't sort of take people to a place where there's a skeleton or partial skeleton that they can help us remove or prepare or anything like that. But what we do do is teach people what to look for and how to see the fossils because they're, they're, they're difficult here. And then we do a number of things, including looking through mine tailings that we've collected or have been donated to us. So instead of just Liz and I or one or two people spending a few hours a year looking through these tailings, we've got, you know, 20 people focused Mm -hmm. on it and we find things every year. And Mm -hmm. then we also take them out to special places on the opal fields that we believe are prospective for having had material dumped there that over the years the wind and rain will have sort of exposed a little. This year we found two crocodile teeth with roots still attached and that's super rare for here. Crocodile material is quite rare from this deposit and to find teeth with the roots still attached, which means that the animal died with that tooth in its jaw (laughs) rather than shedding the tooth is pretty rare. So exciting dinosaur material too. 2016, two of our participants found what has become the first published opalized ankylosaur osteoderm, so one of the bony skin plates from under oh, wow. the skin of an mm-hmm. ankylosaur dinosaur. And that was found by 
two of our participants without our assistance at all. They just realised they were looking at something different. And when they showed it to Phil, he realised immediately what it was, particularly from his work on material in Canada. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so we're finding wonderful things on those digs and forming friendships and, you know, people come back and volunteer in other ways. So yeah. it's a it's a wonderful scientifically productive activity but what I hadn't realised before we started was how it also brings together people who have shared interests and for some of them it's the first time they've got to hang out for six days <laughs> with people who get it, you know, <laughs> people who really share their interest and get excited by the same thing and that's beautiful. That's yeah, great. that's awesome. So through that program, is that how Fostoria was found? No, Fostoria was found um, actually by a miner in 1985 mm. and... The Australian Museum had sort of put out a call to let people know that um, they were looking for fossils and you could have your fossils identified there. So a miner named Bob Foster was finding fossils and as he tells the story, if they had colour in them, so if they were opal with gem colour, he'd just cut them. He wasn't really interested in the fossils all that much. And, you know, he tells this story with a twinkle in his eye knowing, you know, that he's making us cry. But (laughs) that's the way it was, you know. He's just telling it as it was. But he came across a a group of really distinct, beautifully preserved bones and he really knew he had something then. So he packed some of them up into a bag and he went to Sydney and he got into the Australian Museum and talked his way in to see the curator and sort of put the things out on the table and, the guys were just flawed because they'd <laughs> never seen anything like it. Very few people know Lightning Ridge is the only dinosaur fossil site in New South Wales and their opalized fossils. So it's actually super rare for the Australian Museum to have somebody rock up with dinosaur bones. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it, it's sort of a bit of a long story, but um, the Australian Museum team helped excavate the material Bob lent the material to the Australian Museum and then many years later it came back to Lightning Ridge on loan to the Australian Opal Centre. Bob gifted the material to his son and daughter and then they donated it to us in 2015. It took a while to do the research and then a while for it to go through the refereeing process and everything, but in I think it was July this year we revealed a new species of um, iguanodontid dinosaur, Iguanodontian dinosaur, and we revealed the fact that there were actually a herd of them. So there were four individuals who had died together or at least their their remains had been buried together. Yeah, that's, I think, maybe the most spectacular fossil that you guys have here, just because it's so huge and yeah, localized. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I mean, we've we've only got it on display a very small part of it too. There's, I can't remember, it's something like 15 to 20% of the skeleton, which which is actually one of the more complete dinosaurs in Australia and mm-hmm. certainly the most complete opalized dinosaur skeleton in the world. That's um, all opalized, 15 to 20% of the skeleton? It's all opalized, but most of it's in common opal. So it's the gray material that we locally call potch. And then there are small pieces of it that have got the the color in it that really make it identifiable as opal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the majority of it, it's not, you know, the media coverage went wild and we had jewel encrusted dinosaur <laughs> bones and it was it was magnificent, some of the descriptions. I was just reading it thinking, wow, if only. So, yeah, it's not, most of it just looks like grey bone and then there are elements of it where you can see blue or green or other colours coming through, which is incredible and that's when you really know you're dealing with opal. Yeah. Was there anything else you'd want to add? While we're- I should just talk about lightning claw because, you know, we are we are a dinosaur team here. <laughs> and so just thinking about the other dinosaur that's really well known from here, we have the biggest carnivorous dinosaur known from bone remains in Australia, which is lightning claw. It's a megaraptorid. For those who are familiar with Australobinator or banjo from Winton in, in Western Queensland, Closely related to Australovenator, but just a little bit bigger. <laughs> and Lightning Claw, um, unfortunately, hasn't got a scientific name um, because the referees for that paper decided there wasn't quite enough material to warrant that. Mm. But it's a really exciting dinosaur too. I mean, this is a seven-metre long, oh, wow. really big bitey bugger. <laughs> um, and we we love Lightning Claw and it's just amazing to to think about this this country and this environment when it was so different today with these massive carnivores and then the soaring sauropods, two or three species at least of sauropods 
And then the ornithopod diversity was just extraordinary here. And, and that's the picture that's coming out of all the wonderful work that's happening, not just in Lightning Ridge, but through Western Queensland and down in Southern Victoria. Um, there's, there's great stuff happening in WA too. So it's a golden age of dinosaur discovery in Australia. And we're just part of that. Gee, we're having a good time watching That's it all awesome. come together. Yeah. Is lightning claw what? It, what all do you have of lightning claw? Oh, the most, the best known element is a third metatarsal from the from the foot. So it's a big foot bone, and it's it's just beautiful because it's really complete and big. Um, there is a claw bone, a hand claw bone, and then there are a few other skeleton elements. I think there's probably about. I, I should check the paper before I say this, but I think you could count them on the fingers of two hands, the number of bones that we have. So it is a partial skeleton, but not as complete as the skeleton of Fostoria. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So for our listeners, if they wanted to learn more about you and your work and the Opal Center, mm-hmm. where's the best place for them to go? Uh, well, they can go to our website, which is just www.australianopalcenter.com. We have a Facebook page which we go through little bursts of activity on and then we get caught up with <laughs> with <laughs> with other work. Yeah, they're probably the best two places. And if anyone's coming past Lightning Ridge, please come in and have a look. At the moment we have only a very small part of our collection on display, but it's a it's an exquisite little display with some highlights from the collection that will give you a a taste for what's to come in our new center. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll definitely have to come back in a few years. You will. You will. <laughs> Maybe come to the opening. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thanks for your interest. And yeah, hi and good luck to all the dino fans out there. <laughs> thank you. Thanks again, Jenny. The Lightning Ridge in general and the opalized dinosaurs in particular was one of the biggest highlights of our trip for oh, sure. Oh yeah, I tell everybody I got to hold the opalized sauropod tooth. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. If you got a postcard from us, you saw the sauropod tooth that Sabrina got to hold. It was really cool. It's like a green opal and it's just a solid piece. It's really awesome. Yeah, and we're definitely going to have to go back when the new museum opens as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a really nice town. It's like surprisingly big for how out in the outback it is because most of the people that we encountered and we mentioned lightning ridge to would say like oh yeah i've heard of that but most people haven't been there it's a really cool place to go though it's like far enough away that you can sort of relax and get away from the whole big city feel (laughs) but there's still enough to do there like we went out to a restaurant on a sunday at like 7 p.m which was not possible in any of the other outback places we're staying because everything else was closing down. So yeah, it was a pretty cool spot. Yeah, a good weekend getaway spot if you're in the area. And the Australian Opal Center has a crazy amount of fossilized, opalized stuff in this little tiny room, which is just like the most dense museum ever. So definitely plan on spending at least a half hour in there if you go because there's so much yeah and you can see a lot of the pictures we took in our short video that we made which is up on youtube we'll share a link as you write your life story you're far from finished are you looking to close the book on your job maybe turn a page in your career be continued at the georgetown university school of continuing studies Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now for our dinosaur of the day. Unanlagia, which was a request from Tyrant King on Patreon and our Discord, so thank you. It was a dromaeosaur theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous and what is now South America. Only the leg length is known, so it's not clear how long Unanlagia was, but estimates are anywhere from 6.6 feet or 2 meters to 11 feet or 3.5 meters long and weighing 165 pounds or 75 kilograms. It probably had an elongated head, and this is based on its relative's Butyraptor and Ostroraptor, the pelvic region was similar to Archaeopteryx. Originally, it was thought that the shoulder girdle was adapted for flapping and that this showed that flight started with flapping, which, 
is still a big debate today on how flight evolved. And this is because they saw this flat scapula on top of the rib cage so that the shoulder joint could point more laterally. But in 2002, Kenneth Carpenter found that the scapula was probably on the side of the rib cage. Womp womp. Yep. Philip Center suggested that theropods like Unenlagia couldn't lift their forelimbs above their back. Not everybody agrees with these ideas. Some scientists think that if the scapula was in the lateral position, the coracoid bone would jut into the rib cage and that that just wouldn't make sense. There are two species, Unenlagia comohuensis, which is the type species, and Unenlagia painamilli. It was described by Fernando Novas and Pablo Puerta in 1997, and the genus name means half-bird, and that's in the language of the indigenous Mapuche people. The species name of the type species refers to Comahue, which is the region where it was found. The holotype includes a partial skeleton, no skull, but they had vertebrae, sacrum, ribs, chevrons, scapula, humerus, partial pelvis, femur, and tibia. That's not too bad. Yeah, so you can still figure out a lot about the dinosaur. A second skeleton was found in 2002, and that was the one that was named and described in 2004 as Unalagia painamilli. The second species was described by Jorge Calvo and others, and that was, in, again, in 2004. They found a holotype and several paratypes, and the species name is in honor of Maximino Painamil, who's chief of the Painamil community. Unalagia Painamilli is more gracile than Unalagia comohuensis. In 2005, Makovicki and others found Neoconraptor argentinus to be a junior synonym of Unalagia comohuensis, Unalagia was the first theropod found in Argentina that was considered to be a dromaeosaurid. Novas and Puerta considered it to be a link between birds and manoraptoran theropods. Yeah, it's a really interesting dinosaur. And I think there's actually a group called like Unalagians or something like that, which is maybe a subset of dromaeosaurs, depending on who you ask, which is kind of an interesting thing because nobody ever really talks about these dromaeosaurs from South America. We all focus on Velociraptor from Mongolia and, you know, Utah Raptor from the U.S. That's pretty much where most people stop. <laughs> well, except for people like us and people who listen to us. <laughs> we never stop. <laughs> Just keep digging. <laughs> well, figuratively, not literally. Yeah, we don't keep digging. We pay attention to other people's digging. And our fun fact of the day is that it's really hard to tell what the largest carnivorous dinosaur was in the Jurassic, but I've narrowed it down to two. Is this another Erectodromius burrow slash rabbit hole? It took a lot of time because I'm always really hesitant to say that something's the largest or the oldest or like one of these definitive things because, you know, there just has to be one more thing out there that you couldn't find and then you're immediately wrong. So <laughs> as far as I can tell, Torvosaurus and Sauraphaganax are the two largest Jurassic carnivores. So Torvosaurus is a megalosaurid. The estimates have it between about 10 and 12 meters, or 33 to 39 feet long, and around three to five tons, which is quite big. It's a large dinosaur of any type, let alone a carnivore. And then Sauraphaganax maximus is the other candidate. The maximus is definitely a clue that it's <laughs> very large. Sauraphaganax is an allosaurid, and it's sometimes considered Allosaurus maximus because it's very similar to Allosaurus. And the estimates in size and weight are right about the same as Torvosaurus. So you're talking about mid-30s of feet and a few tons in weight. For comparison, T-Rex in the Cretaceous was a similar length, about 12 and a half meters or 40 feet long, but it weighed at least eight tons which is twice as much or more <laughs> than either of these dinosaurs. So in general, dinosaurs in the Jurassic were already pretty massive, and there isn't just this easy, simple trend to larger, which is what Cope's rule originally was, because we have at least two super huge <laughs> Jurassic carnivores. But yeah, T-Rex still is on a class of its own in the Cretaceous. Maybe Spinosaurus is pretty big too, and Carcharodontosaurus. Giganotosaurus. There were some other big Cretaceous ones. But yeah, Sauraphaganax is pretty terrifying because it also had pretty big hands too, being an allosaurid. It would not be fun to be around. Nope. Especially for us where we have basically no protection. Yeah, we're just mushy 
He's <laughs> got no armor. Her skin is just like paper compared to a dinosaur with some scales on it. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing. We're just, we'd be doomed. I'm <laughs> glad they're extinct. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And we'd love for you to join our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. You could tell from watching me walk on my dinosaur.